Be sure to share the podcast on your favourite social media channels. Welcome to your sophomore year at the Tragedy Academy, where you are the teacher and we are the students. Together, we learn from past tragedy to lay the foundation for a better humanity. The only supplies you'll need an open mind and a sense of humor. So, tilt that chair back, talk out of turn, and never raise your hand. Because this is the Tragedy Academy and class in session. Non pure Scott. Out of, just out of curiosity, did you write the mm-hmm. book two, in 2009, Llewellyn's Moon Sign book? No, I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, when, you, when you click on your Amazon um, author list, <laughs> down really? at the bottom, it says you, it doesn't have you actually listed as the author, but it's in the list of your books. And it says uh, Llewellyn's Moon Sign book. Plan- I should see it. I should see if I'm getting some uh, residuals from that. That would, right? I mean, plan your <laughs> life by I, the cycles of the moon. <laughs> not that I think that that's probably selling a million copies, but uh, hey, it could yeah, be, no. man. They've been could the be. cycles of the moon have been uh, responsible for things for a really long time. That is true. It seems like we stopped paying attention to the fact that that uh, might screw the head up. But at any rate, <laughs> hey, thanks, guys. Welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay, and today I am joined by author, a single father of three, school teacher Kent Lawler. How you doing there? And DJ, sorry. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of everything. Good to How be here. How you doing today, Kent? I'm doing very well. Great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. I've been really excited to have you come in. You've got uh, some really cool viewpoints and some uh, great books. I like when somebody's forward thinking and trying to bring people together and, and uh, you know, giving it less of the fluff. When I was yeah. reading through, you you cut to the chase and I like that. It, that was kind of really one of the, uh, the, the impetus for my first book. My first book is about being a parent. And when I first found out that I was going to be a parent for the first time, I started reading anything I could get my hands on just to kind of educate myself. What am I getting myself into? Yeah, it doesn't come with a manual. You got to create your own. It does not come with a manual. And every book that I read was just fluff. And there are some really great books. However, when you read these books and then you actually have a child, I don't know if you have kids, but when you have a child, no, all, sir. all of that can just go out the window. You're like, this is not what they told me about. This is absolutely insane. There's nothing that can prepare you. <laughs> it looks you. insane. From the outside looking in, it looks dirty. It's com- <laughs> There's a lot of dirty things about it, yeah. So I wanted to write a book that gave you the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, just this is how it is, all of the terrible that goes along with it, but also show you how you know worth it it is. And just really kind of be honest with it. That's an amazing way to look at it because too often we glorify happiness and all of the uh, special times to the degree that we make the sad or harder situations much more excruciating and give them so much influence over our lives that we just tend to continually chase happiness and we can't embrace the fact that the bad is also perfect. Right. Because it, without it, you don't get the good. Right, exactly. And, you know, you, you see it on, on social media a lot where people are portraying their life in a glorified way. And that's not how it is. And I think it's OK to be honest and be like, look, especially parenting, but a lot of a lot of other things. Parenting is difficult. It's the most difficult thing you can do. It is exhausting. It makes you feel like you're losing your mind. And you know what? To, to be honest with that and. I kind of wanted to put this book out there so that other people would be like, hey, okay, it's not just me that you calling people on their bullshit. Sure. I I think uh, I I did read one part here. I'm trying to get my light on here correctly. Um, Would you like their secret? Would you like to know how you can have the perfect family? Yes. Okay. here it is. Are you ready? Write this down. Their secret is it's all bullshit. All of it. It is. It's smoke and mirrors. I try to use this so I don't have the parenting experience, but I use this when I talk to people that come from my socioeconomic bracket. I come from a lower income bracket. And oftentimes it's, you know, all of the material possessions that surround a middle class family are deified and made to look so good, shiny and great that it wastes a large portion of the lower income 
person's life trying to achieve what is no no happier, if not worse, because it requires a shit ton of work to maintain that facade. Right. Exactly. And so I try to explain to them that that is a facade. Mm-hmm. It's it's held together with all these things and you're just going to give yourself stomach cramps. You know, enjoy where you are, find something meaningful and move on. Right. And, you know, be happy with what you have and realize it's not going to be perfect. So just enjoy it. In, in terms of parenting, there have been, I don't know, it's been some astronomical number, like 400 billion people who have lived throughout the history of time. And there has never been a single person to be a perfect parent. Everybody has messed up in one time or another. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, think about people that we glorify. Think about, you know, Mother Teresa. Well, maybe she didn't have kids, but, you know. Uh, the- <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> the wrong one right out the gate. Right, exactly. All these people that we look up to and we, we think that these people are perfect. Guess what? They had days where they woke up if they had kids and they were like, F this. I don't want to be a parent anymore. This is not what I signed up for. This is terrible. And it is okay to have those thoughts. It's okay to, to not do it perfectly. We just have to do our best. We have to show up every day and try to do our best. And when we have a difficult day, whether it's with kids or with work, you know what? We go to sleep, we wake up, do it again tomorrow. That's a great way to look at it because it really focuses on mindfulness. Yeah. It allows the past to be the past and allows you to react in the moment to your your environment, to, you know, whomever you're dealing with in that moment, you know, you realize that yesterday has zero influence on the ability for you to do your thing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a great way to look at it. And I got it. It's got to feel a lot better as a parent to clean your slate at the end of the night. Absolutely. I mean, life in general, it's just, it's a long game. You got to get up every day and just keep going and keep going. And some days are going to be great. Some days are going to be terrible, but you wake up the next day and you do it again. You do your best. And, and you don't beat yourself up if it's not perfect. You just keep going. And that's, you know, the, uh, the title of my first book is Perfectly Imperfect because you're not going to do it perfect. So forget about perfect. Put perfect to the side. Just do your best and just that's all you can do. Perfect is just a portrayal. Perfect is media. Perfect is, dear God, right. social media now, right. which it really uh, distorts reality to yeah. the degree that uh, it's insanity these filters and things like that. And then I can't imagine parenting in a time where bullying is now deep fake memes in pornographic ways or being utilized in some manner with your face on something or viral posting something that you did privately that you didn't know somebody else saw. That's astronomically different than what it was for us growing up. And I think, you know, that reflects in, the numbers of depressed kids, uh, you know, I, I hate to say, but like teen suicide and things like that, it's getting, the ages are getting younger and younger and younger where kids mm, are being yeah. affected. It's just, it's heartbreaking, but that's what these kids are dealing with. And I see it, you know, being a, being a teacher, I teach second grade. And even at that level, seven-year-old, eight-year-old kids are worried about how they look in comparison to other kids, um, worried about what they have versus what other people have worried about how many likes they're getting online. I mean, this is that's painful to watch. Absolutely. Because it's all it all divides them. Yeah. It it further, you know, compartmentalizes them into different scenarios where they're not going to experience the things that they should be in their peer groups. Right. They're just going to fear their fear groups. They're not peer groups they're fear groups. Yeah. Because all you're doing is putting yourself in a situation where you're putting blockades. They're blockades. Whether it's a filter, it's still a blockade to judgment. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's a way to, to put on a mask so that somebody else won't make you feel that pain and you fear it right. over and over again. Right. It's so sad to watch kids go through that. And for us, it was happening in late middle school, high school, early college. Now it's late elementary school middle school where kids are mm. are fighting against this. I don't know how we approach this situation for, for so many different reasons. There's a lot of ways to, you know, curb certain areas and things like that. But the reality is, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm putting this out there. What do we do about the fact that our form of media intake now is kind of like looking at the old prices right wheel? As it's rolling by in front of you, but instead of numbers, it is a horrific video and then a fluffy cat 
and then some sad, you know, Sarah McLaughlin animal video, and then, you know, somebody else ranting about this, and then another mm. comedy video. That can't be good for the brain, yeah. especially for the young brain. Right. I mean, it's absolute information overload that it's just being bombarded, kind of like you were saying, by all this stimulus. And you're, you know, especially kids with this developing brain, they're trying to figure out what they're taking in, what they should be taking in. It's, it's hard enough as an adult, but think about being a kid. I hate social media for so many reasons, and I love it for others. For parents, I, I can't even begin to understand what it's like to try to, to put some kind of filter in between the child and, and what's out there. I feel like it's got to be uh, an internal work because the external is nothing that you can take care of. It's got to be, you've got to, I can only think that you have to teach your child mindfulness, yeah. that, that it is the attacker owns the issue, not you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to a certain degree, you know, we can teach them mindfulness. We can help them as much as we can, but there's a certain degree of crossing your fingers and just hoping that they're going to be able to filter those things out because we can't, you know, we can't buffer them all the time and nor is that good to do. Yeah, I was going to say that doesn't sound like a positive way to influence someone by right. impeding their ability to develop. Right. They have to learn those skills themselves. And, you know, we have to I actually talk about it in the book. There is a point where you have to just let go and say, you know, I, I've given you all of my knowledge and, and all of my advice. And I, I hope I've steered you in the right direction. But, you know, you have to kind of navigate this, you know, especially the social media thing on your own and kind of figure out what is real, what's important and what's what you shouldn't pay attention to. Don't let somebody else give you your quote unquote deities throughout your life. You know, yeah. don't let them hand them to you. Let yourself create them. You know, you got to have some kind of filter where you realize that these are not actually what they appear to be um, and take things on their merit, not their, you know, not on how they appear. Right. I feel for the kids now. It's, I know how difficult it was for me growing up. You know, I was I was a quiet kid. I was physically small kid. And I was kind of always on on the defensive trying to insulate myself, kind of protect myself a little bit. Now it's just it's it's that times a thousand. Now, now you're not just dealing with the kids in your neighborhood. You're dealing with, you know, worldwide by the millions, Yeah, by the millions. Mm -hmm. That's why the suicide rate is dropping. Yeah. Or not dropping, but the age rate is dropping. Right. Your mind's not designed to take in massive amounts of information and, you know, see. No offense. We're not supposed to know our second grade teacher when we're 44. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're not supposed right. to have to feel when you're posting things on social media that that old teacher you used to have might actually turn a little, you're, you're going to think things like this. Mm -hmm. And the brain is not designed to hold on to things that long. The mind is being abused. It's being, you know, it's holding on to judgment from so long ago, just via social media or whatever it might be. It, we're supposed to be able to let things go like you had explained before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, as you grow older and as you develop, you're able to easy or more easily put things into into perspective and say, all right, you know, this is not what it looks like on social media. People aren't really like that. When you're a kid, you can't make that differentiate. You can't differentiate that. No, absolutely not. Because you barely understand your reality. Right. You just stepped out of your parents being your God figure. Right. It's bizarre, you know, to step into school, then it's you. The reality is it's all about perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. So even though our bullying was on a smaller scale, I feel like the stigma that surrounded it then where it was stand up and fist fight and, you know, that kind of thing mm -hmm. with no with no representation of the mental aspects that are, you know, taken on in the situation or that the bully might have issues. That, those types of things were not prominent when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And it's also that it's a sign of weakness to be bullied. And we have a, a generation that are above the ones that, you know, went through that. And I feel like our children are getting mixed messages. They're getting such a huge, diverse amount of information when it comes to how to even deal with this. Right. Because people are just spouting off rhetoric or I don't know what you want to call it. it you know, the social media thing is sort of new to 
all of us. I mean, you know, Instagram, Facebook is just came out within the last couple of years or within, you know, our lifetime, at least. We don't know how to deal with that as a psychological thing and how it's affecting kids. For us to tell kids, this is how you have to deal with it. And this is how to look at it. Like, well, we don't really know because we didn't have that. So what the hell do we know? Agreed. I just know that uh, sometimes I look like a pig staring at a wristwatch when I come across <laughs> certain things. <laughs> like, I just don't get it. <laughs> One of the things that I did see in here, though, was that you had discussed tone. Mm-hmm. And I like this because you had given different subsects of how to approach your children and how to be on their level in certain areas, be in their proximity mm-hmm. so that they understand, you know, that you're communicating something with them. Can you explain what it's like to utilize tone? Yeah, I think uh, I think this kind of it, it helped me not only as a parent, but also as a teacher. It's the being mindful of how you're saying something rather than what you're saying. There are a lot of times where we are, especially as a parent, you're at your wit's end and you just kind of like, it bubbles over and you explode. And that's that's a human reaction. That's It happens. Absolutely. But it's so much more effective when we're able to, if we're able to kind of swallow that down and kind of take a minute to breathe and basically just have a conversation with a child. Let's say you have a four-year-old, five-year-old, I don't know, you, you need them to do something. You need them to get their shoes on, you know, because you're late for work and you need to get them to school. And they're just not doing it. They're doing everything but getting their shoes on because that's what kids do. Instead of, do you remember Charlie Brown? You remember? Oh, absolutely. Where the teacher had that voice where it was just like that. Yeah, yeah it was the trumpet with the plunger right, over the end exactly. or something. If you're just constantly snapping at your kids, that's all they hear after a while. And I mean, we get that as adults. So, you know, how many times have you been in a meeting with your boss and your boss is chewing you out about something? And you're just like, after about 30 seconds, you're just like, like, I get the message, but I'm not listening to you anymore. It's a system designed to shut things out that are bothering you yeah. over a period of time once they don't have any control or they don't have any more fear of. Right. You just turn it off. Exactly. It's, I mean, it's a protection thing. So we know that that just does not work. So to get down, lower yourself on a child's level, you know, bend down to them. I, I also give you an example in the book. You just gently place your, your hand like on their arm, on their shoulder or something like that to make a connection to be like, this is what I need mm. you to do. Very slowly, very clearly, very calmly, let them know what you need to do. And that's it. 95 times out of 100. Not going to say 100 because they're kids and they're still insane. But 95. Yeah, meltdown's a meltdown. <laughs> right, Exactly. But 95 times out of 100, that's going to be much more clear than the constant like snapping at them, snapping at them, snapping at them. It's going to be much more effective. It's got to be, you know, a scenario where it's it's tedious for both parties. I can't imagine, you know, having to yell that many times in a row to get the same thing done. It seems like it. It reinforces the bond when you grab someone or, you know, place your hand on their shoulder and have that like conversation, not like a mob boss. Obviously. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, but that's kind, of, that's kind of what you feel like where you like bend down and be like, look, this is what we're doing. <laughs> I like that idea better. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you, you wrote another book and it was uh, mm-hmm. Forever Forward. Yeah. Can you explain that book? You know what? That book was, again, I kind of wrote it for me, almost as I just had these kind of thoughts and I needed to to put them down on on paper. And I didn't really plan on putting it out there. I didn't really think anybody would would read it. But it's, it's kind of my journey into getting into shape. After I had kids, I kind of found myself very stagnated and and just absolutely going through the day-to-day process, like every day just absolutely mm, seemed the that same. hamster wheel. And I mean that, if there is one thing in life that I can't stand, it's the, the feeling of being stagnated and the, the constant over and over and over. Couldn't agree more. That is, that is something that would drive me completely insane. I, I know for me, my, the way my mind works, my brain is sort of a, a chaotic place um, it is loud. It's disorganized. If I am not working on something or have something that I'm doing, my mind 
tends to go to kind of a dark place. I, I, I think somewhere in my family history, there's a history of depression and Same. things like that. I get it. And I, think, I get it. You know what? I think most people can understand that. And I think most people to some degree have that. I, I think all of them have it. It's yeah. just who's willing to talk about it. Sure. And to what degree? Yes, of course. Um, and I will, I'll be honest here. My degree of that is, is pretty significant. I think if I am left stagnated and without something to do it, it I, I tend to kind of veer off to the left. And I mean, you know, that it's, it's not a good place. The wolves are kind of always at the door and I really mm. have to be mindful. Uh, you know, Jim Rohn said uh, that you always have to tend to your garden. If you don't tend to your garden, the weeds will take over. Agreed. You're no good for anybody else either if you don't take care of yourself first. 100%. And, and that's that awareness that you're describing. I've dealt with depression and anxiety and things like that. And I can, I can definitely um, empathize with you in this situation because when I'm left to my own devices, you know, without anything to do or something along that lines, I tend to overanalyze and become self-deprecating oh, yeah. and put myself in that situation where the last interaction that I had with anybody will always be judged to the degree of with which I left it. Yeah. And I think that that's supposed to happen because I don't think we're supposed to be doing it. I think that our mind is not designed to be holding on to all these bizarre interactions with everybody at the end of every time we come in contact with each other. What is our rank when we come back? Right. And people will say, no, we don't do that. That doesn't happen. That's bullshit. Right. It really is true. And I feel like there's spider webs that come out of the top of your head and they're attached to people every time you have an interaction. Mm -hmm. And we literally just let it keep growing and they've become entangled around everybody. And we've got to find a way to fix that. Right. Exactly. You have to be mindful of it. And I mean, it's a difficult thing to to talk about. And for many, many, many years, I'm talking for the first you know, 37, 38 years of my life, I was completely in denial of I don't need help with any of that. I don't want to talk to anybody about I want to just keep everything inside of me, swallow it down and I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. No matter what, I'm fine. And, and it's not until later in life. It's not until really within the last probably two years where I'm like, OK, that's actually not the way that I need to be dealing with it. I need to be dealing with it in a, in a more positive thing, whether it's talking to somebody, even if it's just, you know, friends or family or whatever, I need to have an outlet. I need to have something to focus on because I know me better than anybody else. And that's what I need. So anyway, going back to the book, basically after I had my second and third kids who are twins, they are now seven. A single dad and twins. This sounds like <laughs> right. a sitcom. I feel like anytime <laughs> there's a single, that's how they portray this. This right. is what media will tell you. Right. Media will tell you that you're bumbling through things and you've got two kids and no mom. That's how that would be portrayed. Right, right. And I mean, it's it's incredible. The the comments that I get when I'm out, you know, with me and my three kids are like, if people will come up to me and say, oh, where, well, where's their mom? Like, well, their mom's at, at work. Like, it's okay for a dad to be out with his kids, you know, whether he's a single dad or, you know, the roles are not. Mm, that's that leftover World War II stuff. Right. The, 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 seen and not heard. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the roles are not what they were a long time ago. I get some really bizarre comments. So, I mean, I was married for, for 10 years and we had three kids. And so we had the, uh, the twins. We were hoping for, I, I had, we had our son first and we, we were hoping for a girl and we got twins. And usually when I tell people that, that I have twins, their first reaction is, oh, I would love to have twins. And I, I tell them straight out. <laughs> twins is the last thing that you want. Now, let me qualify that by saying that my kids are, and if anybody, you know, is listening that knows me, they will 100% agree. My kids are everything to me. I would, they are absolutely the best thing in my life. I would never give them up. However, I'm also honest about the situation. Is it incredibly difficult? Think about everybody wants to punt the baby on the plane. <laughs> right. Everybody does. It's just a matter of whether or not you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't. I mean, just think about logistically, financially, things like that. It's That sounds so hard. It's incredibly difficult. It's twice, it's literally twice the shit, twice the cost, mm -hmm. twice all the, it, no. Right. That sounds super difficult. Right. You know, when, when we first had the kids, I'm a teacher, so I have off all summer with them. Plus, I was working at night to 
newborn twins at home, plus a three-year-old at that time. I was getting very little sleep. My mindset was just absolutely going downhill very, very quickly. So I decided mm. I needed to do something. And, w- and what I chose to do was sign up for a gym. I was like, you know what, I'm going to get in shape. I need something to kind of occupy my mind. That will be my little kind of escape for 30 minutes, a couple times a week or whatever. Mm. And I found that that time that I spent at going to the gym mentally was absolutely huge for me. And I got more into it and more into it and more into it. And I decided to write this book about what I learned about myself through going to the gym, getting into later, about two years ago, I got into CrossFit, which I absolutely love doing these crazy obstacle course races, which I absolutely love doing. My brother-in-law is huge into the obstacle races. He travels for them. Yep. He loves it. He does. He's, he's got like a million of those different medals and things like that. And he had a very stagnant lifestyle before that. And now that's, that's pretty much all he does. And he loves it. I will tell you one of the reasons that I love the obstacle course races. And I've done uh, some longer ones. I did like a two nine mile ones. I did a 15 mile one. I'm going to be doing a 30 mile one probably in November. And, and I will tell you, like, I, I hate running. I hate it. So, oh man, I was in the army and I couldn't stand it any time. <laughs> Who likes it? I hate running. It's stupid. You just stand there and wiggle your arms back and forth and lose your breath. People who say There's they like nothing running. nothing going on. Insane. Liars. The same people that say liquor tastes good. Right. However, I will tell you that what I found through that process is that putting myself into discomfort is something Mm. that I very much enjoy and that I very, very much need. Whether it's in a a small environment, like going to CrossFit, our workouts are 30 minutes long. However, at the end of 30 minutes, you are on the floor. You're you're done. And Oh, yes. CrossFit is no joke. It's not. It's not. And in the midst of every single workout that I've done for the past two years, there is a time where you get to the point where you're like, this is, why am I doing this? I want to, I just want to stop. I want to be done with this. This is horrible. I can't go any further. But you push through it. And I found that that discomfort, I absolutely, I love. And I, and I need that to put myself in these weird situations. That's why I do these long obstacle course races. That's why, you know, I'll sign up to, I, I'm sure we'll get into it. But I, you know, I just came back from climbing a mountain in Africa. I had no experience doing that. But I want to put myself in these situations that I'm not sure that I can make it. But if I do, and when I do, on the other side of it, I come out so much better, so much stronger. And it, yeah, you know, go ahead, it, it go just ahead. becomes such a positive thing for me. I, I kind of forget about those, those moments or those times of suffering. And it, it's just such a beneficial thing for me. I, I, I love that. I really do. And I, I think it's in order to remain capable of change, you have to remain uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You cannot, if you're in a position of comfortable, then you're stagnant. If you're in a position of comfortable, then your viewpoints are not changing and they're not, you know, going through that change with you. And I like yeah. that you put emphasis on that. I think that it it goes into societal norms and things like that. That you have to remain uncomfortable in your perception of those around you. Yeah. Otherwise, you're becoming like if if we're gonna be old today, well, you're becoming Archie Bunker. Right. And I mean, we're, we have such comfortable lives now. And that's not a bad thing. That's what, you know, that's what civilization is meant to do, provide some comfort. We're not, it, it, we're not cavemen anymore, where we have to escape from predators and escape from the element, elements and, and find mm, our but food. our mind still works like it is. We, we have that thing in the back of our mind. And, and I think it's important to kind of, from time to time, get back to that and put ourselves in some discomfort. I read a book not too long ago uh, called The Comfort Crisis by, I want to say it was Michael Easter. And it's just an incredible book. But it says that it's so important to get ourselves out of our comfort zone. I mean, we don't, we live such comfortable lives. We don't even know what, what the walls are guarding us from. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what we're capable of. Hey, academics. Have you endured life's tragedies, trials, and tribulations? Did you adapt and overcome? Do you have advice for others to pay forward and want to be a guest? Then email us a brief two to three minute video to show at thetragedyacademy.com and tell us how our academics can learn and grow from these experiences. Thanks again for your support. And now back to class. Um, Do you find that you come to 
better insights about yourself while you're going through these obstacle courses? Do you have, you know, the the ability to process thought? Do you find yourself at a at a much more centered location during this um, workout? I think when in the middle of it, for example, um, the last obstacle race I did was a uh, it was a 15 mile one through the desert of Southern California, and I went into it barely being able to run a mile. I was not a runner at that time, but it was just something that I said, all right, I'm going to push myself through using my mind. I'm just going to keep pushing myself. You're going to will yourself through it. Exactly. Now, I don't think during that race, I came to any realizations. However, during that time, during those actual hours that I was out there, nothing else is in your mind. You're not worried about the kids. You're not worrying about your your finances or your jobs. Your mind does a, a hard reset where you're like, okay, this is potentially a dangerous situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's only a 15 mile race. There's much more insane things out there. I get it. I get it. But it also depends. It's still a lot. Right. You're pushing yourself beyond its normal limits. Our normal limits now, the benchmark's pretty fucking low. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and I I think that's worth pointing out is, you know, what might, might be difficult for me might not be difficult for somebody else. But also myself doing a 15 mile race, there's people who might not be able to do to walk a 5K. So it's just it's all what your threshold is. So whatever that is, you know, there's these crazy people. There's David Goggins that goes out there and runs 250 mile races at a time. And it's just it's inhuman. And there are some people. See, I have a thought behind that. I think it's meditation. Uh, I think that what you're doing is a form of meditation because of the mindfulness, because of the fact that you have to be so much in that moment and so much away from everything around you. I feel like it's another form of meditation. Right. Even though you're moving through the motions, you're you're putting yourself in a position where you're not focusing on the external, you're focusing on the internal. And that's that's to me it's it's a form of meditation. Right. I could see how 250 miles though sounds like a lot of damn calluses and blisters and right i don't think i can meditate that long no 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 me either i mean i think (laughs) i think you have to be a different kind of person for that but whatever your threshold is being able to, to push that and i think it puts you in check and then when you're done with it you now kind of have that as a new baseline you can say when something else comes up that's difficult whether it be in your home life or work or another physical challenge or something like that you can say to yourself okay i've been here before i've i know what my limit is as of right now. And it's not even my limit. You know, I could probably go past that, but I've been in this discomfort before and it will pass and I will get through it and I will move on to the next thing. And I think you can kind of use that for a whole bunch of things. Just so I could see the advantages to this uh, for parenting as well. Mm -hmm. In in my mind, you know, when it comes to parenting, it's like you have bad days or difficult days, but you know, like we were saying before, you, you wake up the next day and be like, okay. The hard reset. Yes, sir. It's a reset. Like, all right, I've, I've already been through this. I, it's just another day. It's just another meltdown. It's just another financial setback. It's just another, you know, job I got laid off from whatever it is. You could be like, I've been here before. I've done harder things. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. I I remembered the point that I was trying to make. I feel like it would probably give you uh, some solace in the fact that you know that you, you have the capability to go that far for your children. Got to be a confidence boost for the parenting skills as well. Right. Absolutely. I mean, anything you do where you push yourself to the limit, even though the suffering is deep, your capacity to go past that and transcend that is, is even greater. Basically boiled down, you come out the other side, a better, stronger person. Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson. Um, I've heard some of his stuff. I, I like him. In my opinion, probably one of the best, one of the greatest Western minds of, of our time. Just a super interesting guy. He, and he he talks about this thing and there's you know no way I can do it justice, but he, he talks about rescuing your father from the belly of the whale. And basically what, what he means by that is as you're going through life, you set goals because you want to leave it, live a mean, meaningful life. So you set goals and the goals should be difficult and you kind of sacrifice other things to work towards those goals, whatever it's a relationship or a, a job or whatever it is. So, you, you know, you have a, a hierarchy that the goals are at the top. And as you start working towards your goals, you get confronted with these challenges. And each challenge you 
have to maybe learn a new skill. Maybe it's public speaking or, you know, you don't know about anything about starting a business and you have to learn a new, new skill. And as you do that, you kind of get better as a person, kind of like going to the gym where you lift a weight, your body breaks down, but it builds back stronger. Well, there's clinical proof that our genes, when you learn a new skill, our genes kind of code for new proteins and they build new neurological structures and they basically unlock a part of you that you didn't really know existed, if that makes sense. And that scale. So every time you face a challenge and overcome it, you learn something new and you become better as a person. And then you come to the next challenge, you get better and better and better. And eventually, going back to rescuing your father from the whale, eventually you come to the most difficult thing that you can imagine, the darkest, most malevolent thing that you could possibly imagine, whatever that is. If you can face that and overcome it, then basically you have achieved your full potential. You have become the the composite of all of your ancestors that have come before you and all of that, all of those genes that were locked inside of you. I feel like we are a lineage of genetic and hereditary insanity. And I feel yep. like with the self-awareness, we slow it down. The, the, mm-hmm. the more we put on the brakes, the more our next generation is going to come out the other end, slightly more mindful, slightly more aware of what's going on behind them and slightly less defunct like we are. <laughs> right. And, you right. know, for, for all intents and purposes, it's, right. it's cleaning it out. It's 1.1, it's 1.2 instead of 1.0. Right, right. But we have to do those difficult things yes. to make ourselves better so that the next generation gets better and better and better and better. I mean, if we, if we don't do the difficult things, then, then we're just we're too comfortable. We're just saying we're staying stagnated, whether it's financially. If you want to start a business, you have to learn these new skills and you have to face your fears and get it done, whether it's physical, going to the gym and putting in the work. You, you can't read about pushups. You have to actually go and do the work and Absolutely. You're not going to get muscle memory out of, you know, just going once a once a year and trying to get, you know, joining a push-up competition and seeing right. if you can rack out as many as the other guys. It's not going right. to happen. And does the work sucks? And absolutely. You know, does the uh, learning new skills, new things at the gym, is that difficult? Absolutely. But we have to do that in order to get better, even if it's in, you know, relationships. If you're not with the right person, it's like the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. You have to make that difficult decision of, you know, maybe I should leave this person because who knows what's possible out there. There's no limit to like human growth. We don't know what our limits are. I feel like if you are being authentic, if you're being 100% yourself, that these types of scenarios will present themselves in your Once you let go of the things that are, you know, holding you back, you would find Mm -hmm. that niche, that place where you felt, you know, that you, you feel you are putting your purpose out there. I feel like you can apply this to all of the arts that if you pick up something and you, you truly love it, you will adapt to it and it will work in your favor. It'll help you. I, I think there's something to that whole law of attraction, whatever you put out there is going to come back to you. And I mean, that's a scary thing just to rely on that. Just go to a car lot and realize that if you look at a car and you say, oh, okay, I never looked at this model before. I kind of like it. Then leave the lot. You're going to see them all over the place. You're going to see them all over the place, which everybody confuses that law of attraction with bringing things to yourself. It's the law of focus. It's Mm -hmm. the law of what you're paying attention to. It's how magicians, you know, screw with us. For forever. We're looking right. at the wrong thing. Right. It's all what you focus on. You can get anything you want. It's mm-hmm. all already there. It's just a matter of what you're looking at. Right. But, uh, you know, I will say it's it's a scary thing to kind of oh, yeah. let to let go and say, all right, if I focus on this, it will come to me because there's a large part of uh, of me and probably most of other people that are like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to, you know, overnight whatever, make the money, find the person, or find the thing that, that gets me going. But it, somehow it does. It. Right. You're looking for it. If somehow you're looking it does. For it, it's not going to come to you because you've idealized it and it's not going to be authentic because it's created right. or it's predicated off of stigmas and things like that. We're fishing in the wrong pond. 
<laughs> right. It, it, we don't even understand that, though. We don't know who we are. We don't know what decisions are predicated on. I had somebody on uh, yesterday and we were talking about implicit bias and how that really does create and shape how we interact with people, what we perceive as good or bad. And right. we're not uh, capable of understanding that at the moment. But like you said, if we continue to address these things within our generation, and allow it to come out the other side, then we get rid of those implicit bias. We call them out and we, we remove that. The best way that I was able to, to, to comprehend this was, you remember uh, Ben Franklin's bifocals? You're a second grade teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Franklin's bifocals are right. implicit bias. Each individual lens, as you bring them down, can be a bias. And as you collect them and you move them, you're distorting your reality as you look through True. it. And each True. one can be good, bad, and different. But people don't realize that they even exist. Because right. they're all clear. Right, right. And I mean, you know, even that goes back to social media and all of that, how we see things, how we perceive things and what the reality of it actually is. Oh, you know, it's funny uh, after getting into podcasting and learning audio and, you know, working through all the different ways that you uh, you set things up and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I have a much different or a much better understanding of what how things are coming out of the box in front of us when we're sitting on the couch. I'm like, hey, that's not, I know what you're trying to do there. That's, right. <laughs> you're trying right. to make me believe this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when you kind of switch your thinking, you kind of see, all right, I, I see why they're doing that or why somebody is saying, and we see it all the time. We see it in social media. We see it in politics. We see it in education. Like, you know, we this see is it in why. our neighbors, we see it in our parents, we yeah. see it in the masks that we begin. We're, we're issued one at birth when we start. When, the moment we're not going to be authentic is the moment we get issued our mask. And our mask, right. you know, we get that first one from our parents and we get that second one from our, you know, our school, our peers. And you just keep collecting them. And rather than just putting marks on the one mask we're given or, you know, just leaving it there and being that first one. We collect them. We put them in a bag. We throw them over our shoulder and we carry them and we swap them out at interactions. That's bullshit. Mm -hmm. You can't get right. by that way. We need to wear our scars. Uh, you know, I was talking yeah. to my friends, Nikki and Andre the other day about, uh, you know, marriage and how I believe that the black community wears their scars when it comes to familial bonds and the way that they support each other and self-soothe from inside. It, really is something we should emulate and take on and, and learn that it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have made a mistake. And I'm yep. not saying that that's, that's black families. I'm saying that all families no, no, no. go right. through these situations. And when you wear your scars with pride, there's a lot more to it. You're being authentic. And, and I mm -hmm. think that those masks that we carry throughout life are, they're weighing us down. Now they're in trailers yeah. Now they're, you know, we're, we're dragging them out. And unfortunately they're like made out of shit. So they smell real bad. And it, literally it's, right. it is that. And until you sit down, say, do your form of meditation exercise or mm -hmm. yoga or instruments or, you know, singing, whatever it is, those unravel those masks. You start to find them and call yourself out. Yeah. You start to realize that they're only lenses. They're lenses right. and perceptions and ways that we think about ourselves. And they, we don't have to do that. But yeah. you have to go through that existential crisis. You mm -hmm. have to be on your knees. You have to know that it hurts. And you, then you have to realize that it's nobody's fault but your own because you're yep. accepting it as your reality. Yeah. I don't know, I yeah. kind of ran it there for a second. No, 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 you're 100% right. I mean, all, two things that you said really stuck out, authenticity and reality. I mean, we have to be our authentic self. And it took, as I said before, it took me many, many years to get to the point where I feel like I'm trying to be my authentic self, trying to find myself, who, who I really am. That sounds like a simple thing, but that's a big process. Ooh, that's hard, brother. Yeah, I've, been, absolutely. I've been meditating for two years, and I think I probably just polished the nose on my mask. <laughs> I'm not nowhere right. near the rest of it. When you finally start getting to that spot where you're like, I am happy with myself, and I am accepting myself for, for who I am, all of the bad that I've done, all of the good, the good that, that I've done, and this is who I am, and being able to be okay with that, okay with everything that's happened in the past, 
that's a great place to be. That's a really hard thing to do. Shame is yeah. a real shitty thing. Shame yeah. and guilt. And it, it, it's funny, you know, yeah. you can't hand me shame. You can't give me a bucket of guilt. You can't give me any of those. They're not actual tangible items. They're literally some form of tie between you and another human that really has no physical appearance in any way, shape or form. It's just a bizarre exchange. Isn't it crazy that guilt almost all of the time is something that we're putting on ourselves? Most of the time, guilt is not coming from somebody else. They're expressing their, their feelings about something, but it's us feeling guilty, you know, within ourselves. And a lot of times we just, just have to Harvey's let that go. Window thing. We're thinking what other people might be thinking about us and making exactly. it our reality. Right. And so to go back to reality, we always have to kind of be thinking, well, what is the reality of this? Is this person really thinking this about me or are these things that I'm thinking about myself? Are they actually true or is this just something that I'm completely overthinking? And I mean, I'll be, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, I overthink about everything. Everybody but I, does. I, I, I have to keep putting myself in check. Be like, no, what's the reality of this? What's actually happened? It's, you know, it, put it in perspective for me. One of the analogies was if go to work, go to your office and wear a certain outfit. You, you, we spend all this time, right? Get in the closet. And we're like, okay, I'm going to wear this. I'm going to put this on. This tie matches. I got this shoe, you know, that goes together. Got my watch on, got all this stuff. Okay, I'm ready to go. And I get to the office and everybody's looking at me and they're going to judge how I look today. Am I presentable? Did I make the cut? Go home. And try to remember what anybody else was wearing unless there was like a distinct <laughs> conversation. <about> right. <laughs> right. 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 I fucking remember. Right. Unless it's Charles that always wears that stupid white t-shirt with the yellow pit stains. Right. Other As, than that. that unless somebody's know. dressed up like a duck or something like yeah. that. Neither do they. When they went home, all they cared the whole time they were standing in front of you was how do I look? And if they judged how you looked, it's because they didn't like how they look today. Exactly. It's coming from them. It's not coming from us. Doesn't even exist in your world. It is 100% right. them. Super yeah. weird. So challenging yourself. You said you went to yeah. Africa. You want to yeah. stay uncomfortable. You climbed a mountain. What mountain did you climb? I climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the highest mountain in Africa. It is uh, it's one of the seven summits, which is the which are the uh, the seven highest peaks on each of one of the continents. Um, so Kilimanjaro is in Tanzania, which is southeastern Africa. It's 19,341 feet. So it's pretty big, but it's a it is a climbable mountain. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I had to look up a little bit of information on Kilimanjaro. All I mm -hmm. knew is that it was a volcano. Wasn't sure where it was in Africa or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. Looked it up and I did have to do a comparison because I climbed Mount Fuji and I was pissed. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I was pissed. I was like, you beat me by like 2,000 meters. Right. I don't have any bragging rights today. <laughs> I had actually looked into climbing Fuji because the airfare was insanely cheap with the Olympics going on, but they closed Mount Fuji with COVID and all of that. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's a completely climbable mountain. It wasn't physically challenging. However, I will tell you the altitude was a big, big factor. And al altitude is... It's real. Um, it's it an equalizer. you up. Yep. Yep. And a lot of people say like, oh, I've been, you know, I've been out to uh, Colorado. I've been skiing altitude. Oh, no, no problem. <laughs> Something happens between about 16,000 uh, above 16,000 feet. And it kind of compounds as you get higher that, I mean, you are nauseous. You are have incredible headache, hallucinating. I, I mean, it isn't a bizarre, bizarre thing. Altitude is a killer. So this kind of has me curious. So if you're at that altitude and you are, you know, you're being deprived of oxygen, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Do you come to any realizations there when you're pushing yourself at the very limits and you find yourself heading up to that mountain? I can, I, I, I'm curious because we had somebody on the other day, we talked about the spirit molecule. DMT, mm -hmm. things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You get closer to things. I'm wondering, does the brain start firing when you're at that level? I, I have to say that, I mean, it's it's an eight-day climb up the mountain. So you're on the mountain for, for a while. Beautiful during the day, incredibly cold, just unforgiving cold at night, below zero, sleeping in a tent on the ground. Summit night, where you climb the last about probably three, I would say 3,000 feet. 
Um, Summit night, you leave at midnight. You leave base camp at midnight. You climb through the night. You get up to uh, the peak probably around seven o'clock in the morning. And then you have about four and a half hour climb down to base camp and then another four and a half hour climb to the next camp. I want to put one thing out there. We need to discuss the (laughs) descent after this. Okay. I need to discuss the descent. Okay. Summit night is absolutely brutally cold. Somebody said it was negative 19 at the summit, 19 degrees. That's We're talking gale force winds. You are absolutely exposed to the elements. It is the middle of the night. You are, it it feels like you're breathing through a straw from the altitude. And all of these things were new to me. And they kind of laughed at me when I first got there. They were like, you're from South Florida. So you're at, did you climb the at all or did you just show no. up on judge, uh, on the day like, let's go? You let's were like a middle-aged man saying he could sprint and 100%. not stretching first and taking off next to his son. 100%. <laughs> yep. And running the whole thing in loafers. Yeah. I, I mean, I got there. We, we had like a day and a half to acclimatize. And I mean, you go up the mountain. The reason it takes so long to get up the mountain is that you have to go up a little bit at a time. You go up and come down a little bit. So you climb high and sleep low so that your body gets acclimated to that, that wow. altitude. And then you go up and come down a little bit and up and come down to it. Um, so where was I going with this? That night, it was really, really mentally taxing. I mean, I feel like I'm a mentally strong person, but that night was incredibly taxing to just put one foot in front of the other. You're moving at a snail's pace. You can't go fast because if you start sweating, the water on your body freezes immediately. You go into hypothermia. So you need to go slow, not only for the sweat, but also the altitude. But you have to keep moving because if you stop, then you're going, you know, you're in danger of frostbite and things like that. So it's like this eight hour nonstop shuffle climb up this mountain along these ridges that get a little, you know, you, you kind of look over the side and it's, it's a big, big drop. And you're like, oh, OK, this is getting a little sketchy. And you also feel a little bit like you feel like... <sighs> For lack of a better way to say it, you feel like you're a little bit drunk. You're out of it. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that the altitude you, sickness. Yeah, you, you just kind of have these cobwebs in your mind. So you're trying your best to kind of stay focused. So that night, I don't think I had any real, uh, you know, uh, epiphanies or realizations. But I think just the whole trip in general was was mind blowing. From from being on the mountain, from being so secluded, so far away from anything. And also feeling so back to nature, back to where we're from. Yeah. Yeah. Connected, but also insignificant on the mountain. The mountain kind of tolerates you. If one of us had, if something had happened and one of us died up there and people do die on the mountain, not too many, but if one of us had died up there, it wouldn't have even been a story other than the people at home who obviously would have been upset that I didn't Rain of sand in that hourglass. Exactly. It would not have been a thing because it's happened so many times before. It was, you know, the mountain has been there. It will always be there. You felt so small and insignificant compared to where you were. It was just an incredible feeling. So, I mean, that was mind blowing. Meeting the people of Africa was mind blowing. Um, I got a chance to go on a, a short safari, which was mind blowing. It, oh, the whole I'm jealous, trip. man. I would love to go on a safari. It was incredible. I mean, I came home and kind of was in this weird headspace for at least a week because I was just kind of like trying to digest what life was like over there and what life is like all of a sudden, you know, you're thrown back into the the hustle and bustle and kids and jobs. And you're like, wow, it's 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 a lot to, to process. There's a series on National Geographic about planet Earth. I think it was it, it, Will Smith. Um, he, uh, he's the narrator for it i think it's uh one strange rock right and it's told for it's a it's a i mean amazing series and it's told from the perspective of the astronauts on the space station Mm. and there's supposed to be a phenomenon that when you go up there that you have this shift in consciousness because you realize that you are insignificant in the overall scheme of things. And you see the fragility of life and how the things that we are doing are not necessarily the things we should be doing. Right. And they, they really show you all throughout the world, different things. And it was just an amazing series, but I feel like that's a similar look that you, you get 
uh, you know, from somewhere like that, the top of Kilimanjaro in Africa. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you come back to, to reality and you're like, what are these little things that I'm stressing over? I, I mean, I was just in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And I mean, here's maybe even a, a better example. After we came off the mountain, I had two days, uh, I wasn't able to get a flight out. So I had two days in Africa and I ended up doing a safari, but driving out to one of one of the parks, we went through the Maasai territory. Now in Tanzania, there's, I think it was 126 different tribes. And the Maasai are the one tribe that still live traditionally. They still live off the land. They have not integrated themselves really into civilization yet. So you drive through their territory. Absolutely incredible. So you drive through their territory and you see their little huts in the middle of no, I mean, when I'm saying middle of nowhere, it's like nothing, nothing around. It's like you're on the surface of Mars. Absolutely crazy. But you see their little huts that are made out of literally sticks and branches. Um, no bigger than one bedroom of, of one of our houses. And there will be five or six of those little huts all together. And there was a, a fence or a barrier around all of those huts made out of the acacia tree, which are these really thorny trees. And I remember asking our guide, like the, the, the people are, are goat and cow herders. And I remember asking our guide, are those so that the, uh, the sheep and the, the goats and the cows don't wander off at night? And he said, no, those are so that the lions and the hyenas don't come in and take the goats. And I, even just that, thinking that there are people living right now, 2021, that have to protect themselves by building a fence so that lions and hyenas don't come in to get their goats because the goats are their dinner. They're right. Their dinner, but they're also status and they're also currency. Mm, yes. It's what they base their entire life around. And what was really interesting was that we saw at, at around six years old, the boys of the Maasai people are sent out with the herds of, let's say, goats. And every morning the boys get up and they have to take the goats, usually five or six miles during the, the dry season, to a water source so that the, the goats can drink. So the boys, again, six years old, they have a stick with them, just a, a stick, and they are responsible for taking 30, 40, 50, 60 goats five, six miles to the water source and bring them back. Now, along that way, there are lions, there are hyenas, there are leopards, things like that. And if the boys let one of these animals take the goats, you know, the boys aren't allowed to. He's literally walking with like a, a gyro across the, across the desk. Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's not cool. That's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility. Right. Exactly. And they, you know, they wear these, these red, I, I don't even know what you call them, but they, these red coverings because they believe that red scares off the lions. I don't know if that's true at all, but I, I probably believe them. I would believe them. I mean, I guess they've been there long enough. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. Yeah, that's true. That's what their daily life is. And these kids, by the way, you know, on the way to the water, water source, these kids don't have, uh, you know, there's, there's no uh, 7-Eleven where they can run in and get a snack on the way. If they're hungry, if they're thirsty, they drink milk right from the goats on the way. Seeing something like that, that people are living like that, and not only living like this, one of the most incredible things that blew my mind was these are generally happy people. There it is. There's a reason why there are remote tribes throughout the world that say, fuck you, don't come in our house. We don't want what you have. Right. And it's generally the, the terms that are used are insanity. Yeah. And they, they are not wrong. Like, no. Here's the reality. We fly around the world to take a nap for a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. When naps yep. are, are literally where we're standing. Right. And nothing changed and, about it except for the outside stimuli. And the ability to do that, we work for months and months and months and months and months to save up the, the money to be able to do that so that, you know, we can take pictures and tell our friends that we did that. I, I can't even deal with the taking pictures thing because I feel like I, I'm like, I want to know what's going on now. I don't want to look through a lens. It's, you know, I understand taking pictures for, you know, social media or to share right. that kind of thing. But I feel yeah. like we look at life through a lens now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm guilty of it. I came home and I posted a couple of pictures from my trip on, on Instagram. But they were Mount Kilimanjaro. That's a hell of a lot more important than a lot of shit in my feed. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Somebody else is, True. you know, announcing that they, you know, made biscuits and 
something else. Well, yeah, I mean, the, you know, yeah, the rest of it is like cat memes and, and you know, things about like Karen that. or something. Right, exactly. But to, to come home and all of a sudden I'm stressed about, you know, something my my kids are doing or something that's going on. I, I got a, an email from work. I'm like, what? How am I stressed about this? Meanwhile, there's these people who are completely happy with nothing. Literally, you need what you don't nothing. know. It's incredible. It's a very, very, as I say, it took me a week, probably two weeks to get back here and, and be okay in my like headspace. But it, you know, it stays with me. I'm like, all right, what are my priorities? Good. What's really important? It should stay with you. Yeah, that's that's a requirement. And I think that yeah. um, you've gone through this for a reason. You've gone through the demons. You've gone through everything that you've gone through so that you could have this moment and then you can turn around and start writing more books and telling more people to stop focusing on the bullshit and start realizing that there's only right. one existing thing. And that's now. There's no such thing as tomorrow. There's no such thing as yesterday. If you can hand me some of it, if you can take me there, I'm with you. Because every time I land somewhere, it's today. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you can't live in the past. You can't live in the future. You have to focus on now and what the reality of now is. 100%. You know what, Kent? I, I feel like I've learned a lot from you today, and I, I, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been super cool. I, I love I've had a great time. Thank you. Uh, man. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been super fun. So thank you. Welcome man. back anytime. I love the positive energy. I love what you represent. You. Please keep pushing on and uh, let us know what the next Kilimanjaro is. Yes. You got to stay uncomfortable. The next thing's going to suck. Cause the next <laughs> <laughs> where do you go after that? Yeah. 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 You set the bar, dude. I, I have a couple things in mind that are that are a little bit crazy, but you're riding you know that suspect rocket with uh, Bezos here next. I, I mean, what what else are you going to do? Just sit around and, and be comfortable and be stagnant? No way. No Can't way, man. And just be yourself and everything else will, will all fall into play. Yep. yep. All right. Remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning. Hey, academics, thanks again for attending another class at the Tragedy Academy. You can show us some love by subscribing, downloading, and rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or ask Amazon Alexa to play the Tragedy Academy podcast. You can find links to all major podcast platforms and past episodes at thetragedyacademy.com. You can find us on all the majors of social media on Instagram at the Tragedy Academy 2019, on TikTok at the Tragedy Academy, and on Twitter at tragedy underscore academy, where we'll post our clips of upcoming shows, updated info, and thoughts. If you'd like to be a guest, send an email to show at thetragedyacademy.com. Keep an eye out on Instagram for Tragedy Academy giveaways. Thanks again for coming to class. And remember, be cool, keep learning. What's up, academics? This is Jay. I'm here to talk to you about Into the AM. This is a clothing and apparel company that I came across last year that has the absolute coolest designs. And the reason why I was attracted to it is because I grew up without a lot of money, like many others, and had to shop on that outlet rack with the irregular items. Things like the fly was over four inches to the left or the right sleeve would be twice the size of the left. It looked like I was growing horizontally. Like, it's okay, honey. You'll grow into your left arm. So you really don't get a chance to express yourself the way that you want to. You go into life, you start putting on suits, you start putting on uniforms, and you realize you'd never had a chance to truly express yourself. Enter into the AM, a team of artists and creators who share a common vision. They see clothing as a canvas to express what drives you. Since 2012, they've developed premium apparel that elevates self-expression and provides unparalleled comfort for wherever your passions take you. Into the AM's passion for change is the driving force behind their brand. They remain committed to creating products that inspire and promote self-expression by partnering with like-minded organizations focused on giving back to communities in need. Last year, they donated 1% of all revenue from their graphic tees collection to the Art of Elysium charity. The Art of Elysium is an artist organization built on the idea that through service, art becomes a catalyst for social change. For over 24 years, the Art of Elysium has paired volunteer artists with communities to support individuals in the midst of difficult emotional life changes. They currently offer 110 community programs per month, serving over 30,000 individuals per year. The only permanent thing in life is change. Supporting charities dedicated to helping those going through these changes, trials, and tribulations 
require a never-ending commitment. The onus is on us as creators to affect change through our true, authentic talents. And Into the AM is the model of how this is done. Their clothes are handcrafted with care. They have a team of skilled artisans that craft each garment with the highest quality fabrics and eco-friendly inks. Not to mention, these things don't shrink, they don't fade, and they fit as if they were designed supernaturally. I'm stopped every time I wear one of the graphic tees to find out where I got it. The colors attract attention from miles, and the art is nothing short of spectacular, with designs for everyone. One of my personal favorites, Twilight Maiden. Go take a look. Into the AM does all of this while putting their money where their mouth is. 30-day money-back guarantee, lightning-fast shipping, and hassle-free returns. The deals are endless. Graphic tee bundles, discount promo codes. Get over there. Check it out. I'm highlighting the tees. But I'd be remiss to not mention that if you want to walk around in the absolute most comfortable shorts, joggers, and basic tees, hit up into the end. I even wear the basics to the gym. Head on over to the tragedyacademy.com, go to our sponsors tab, and follow the affiliate link to the Into the AM store. Help support Into the AM and the Tragedy Academy by purchasing the absolute best apparel and the best designs ever. And remember, academics, be cool and keep learning.